I want to start this evening by just honoring all the terrific work you've been doing. And I think I can speak for all the teachers. We find uh, the interviews with you just inspiring. The integrity, the honesty, the courage, you know, that you exhibiting and the energy you put into the practice it really shows. You just don't know how beautiful you all look. You know, I was I was preparing for the talk, sitting over in my room, and you know, you kind of, well, I want to add this, subtract all this kind of. And what I really wanted to do was just come over here and sit with you people and soak up the vibe. So I snuck in the back and sat during the last sitting. I think sitting with you people is like good preparation for anything. So, let me start with a, with a poem. I think I could turn and live with animals. They're so placid and self-contained. I stand and look at them sometimes half the day long. They do not sweat and whine about their condition. They do not lie awake in the dark and weep for their sins. Not one is demented with the mania of owning things. Not one is respectable or industrious over all the earth. That's from Whitman's uh, song to myself, if you didn't recognize it. I mean, I, I like this passage, and like Whitman... I can find myself, you know, parts of myself yearning for that kind of simplicity of nature. Maybe some of you do too. You know, we're so complicated on one level. I mean, there's a part of me that does know the joy of relaxing into nature and not fighting against it, not resisting it. I mean, that's the part, and you've all experienced your parts like this this week, that's, that's capable of, of just seeing, just hearing, just touching, just loving. It's that part that when it's not obscured by the clouds of discursive thinking and fear, you know, that's really comfortable, restful, feels like home, spacious. So this spiritual, this mythological spiritual journey um, that you're on, it's a gradual exploration and discovery of just what what it is to be alive. You know, kind of a kind of a, a falling back of the layers of aliveness and just discovering that deeper and deeper connection that we have to all of creation. And when the Buddha, flesh and blood person just like yourself, when he decided to cast his lot to the wind, to go into homelessness, I mean, what was he after? What was he looking for? You know? Maybe he's just looking to know the truth. Simple as that. The wholesome desire to know the truth. To understand the simple, clear workings of nature. And ultimately, to learn, cultivate ways to relax into it and not resist it. And that's exactly what you all are doing these days here. So the Buddha worked with his practice just as you have been, cultivating the heart, sharpening his mind, stripping away the veils that are obscuring the truth. And in doing this, he ultimately lighted upon three characteristics of existence that are common to all of us. 
And he emphasized these three characteristics through his 45 years of teaching. And he, he, he felt that they were very important. Anicca, the impermanent nature of things. Dukkha, the unsatisfactory nature of things. And anatta, the selfless nature of this existence. One colleague stated these in the vernacular. And he said, look, life is hard. Puts you through changes. But hey, don't take it so personal. <laughs> so let's talk about impermanence first, because I think it's a, it's a nice doorway into understanding uh, the other two. And we've been, we've been knocking on these doors all, all week. I'll start with a, a little poem from Zen Master Dogen. To what shall I liken the world? Moonlight reflected in dewdrops, shaken from a crane's bill. To what shall I liken the world? Moonlight reflected in dewdrops, shaken from a crane's bill. From that little verse, you get that feeling for the fleeting nature of it all. The temporary flash of moment after moment. I mean, when we look in even a cursory fashion, everything is changing incredibly. The seasons, day to night. You know, I live in Virginia. We have the Appalachian Mountains there. They're kind of gentle mountains. But most people don't know that at one time, they were the tallest mountains in the world. And they've gone through some changes. Kind of weathered a bit. You know? People from the Rocky Mountains laugh for the Sierra Madres, you know? Come on. So time passes, things change. We get that. And as humans, we tend to fear change. And throughout history, that may have been the generator for some of those kind of comical doomsday predictions. Some of you may remember the Kahutek that was going to come and everything was going to get weird and end. And, and then there was the Y2K. You know, that was the time to grab your bag of mung beans, your automatic weapons, your Poland spring water, and get down in the bunker, you know? But the next one that we'll get ready for next year is the Mayan calendar, right? Everybody's heard about that. And it's going to happen on December 21st, 2012. And that is really an auspicious day. A lot of people don't know this, that that is also the birthday of Kiefer Sutherland, (laughs) Samuel Jackson, and Frank Zappa. What could be more apocalyptic than those three? Read you something. It's from a really highbrow periodical I always read. It's called The Funny Times. And it's The End of the World as We Know It by um, uh, Leanne Jashaway. And she says this about the upcoming Mayan thing. It was the Mayan civilization who set the expiration date we're quickly coming up on. The Mayans were a really intelligent people. They had 20 days in their week. Imagine how tired you were by the time hump day came around. <laughs> but they didn't specify how the world would end. It could be nuclear war, global warming, earthquakes, tsunamis, volcanic eruptions, menopause, locusts, beetles, rabbit infestations, asteroids, or hemorrhoids. It could be anything. Perhaps Bill Gates will get tired of inventing new Windows software and just push the delete key and we'll all disappear. Or maybe Mark Zuckerberg will just unfriend everyone all at the same time. And as you know, if you can't follow it on Facebook, it ain't happening. <laughs> now eventually, one of, these, one of these doomsday prognosticators is going to be right. I mean, eventually. I mean, and based on past history, we can expect it. Most scientists believe we're in the midst of another mass extinction. That every hour, three uh, of the species on this planet 
become extinct. That's like 27,000 a year. But this, is, this has happened four or five times already in the last four billion years. And each of those times, 75% to over 90% of the species have disappeared. So this isn't like a new thing. And for a total of, get this, that over the course of the earth, a minimum of 30 billion species have gone extinct. And the outlier, I, I don't know who figures this out, they sit in windowless rooms with powerful, very powerful computers somehow, that up to 4,000 billion species have gone extinct. So statistically, 99.99% of all species that have ever existed on this planet are gone. Some change there. You know, there's a guy at the University of Chicago, uh, Professor Ropp, his name is, and uh, he kind of looks over all this stuff. And he says, well, basically we're all extinct. It's almost mathematically you know, the case. And the average length of time for any species to exist on this earth just happens to be right around four million years. And that's, you know, the approximate age of Homo homo sapiens today. It's just an average. (laughs) Now, of course, extinctions are always bad news for the victims, you know. But it appears that it's a good thing for this dynamic planet, that each time there has been an extinction, there's been this explosion of new kinds of life that, that have come aboard, each time. It's like when there's a forest fire, you know, after that, there's this incredible growth. Now, of course, the sad part is that humankind may be exacerbating, and is exacerbating this this increase in the extinction level right now. You know, it's not directly related to polarity shifts or volcanic activities or an asteroid hit or some of the things that precipitated the other ones. But in any event, everything is in motion. Everything is changing. No matter what the causes are. The earth itself, now think about this, has never been in the same place twice. Okay. We're cruising through space on this little planet. It's spinning about a thousand miles an hour. And we're going around this thing we call the sun, this gas ball, at, at 70,000 miles an hour. And the whole solar system, all our brother and sister planets, are cruising through our galaxy at a million miles an hour. And in this Milky Way galaxy, that we, if it's a clear night, we can see it, uh, there are billions of solar systems like ours, all moving at this rate of speed. And the whole Milky Way galaxy itself is moving at a million miles an hour. And when we look out, there are billions of these galaxies, all with billions and billions of stars and planets, all moving. I mean, how big is it all? Nobody, nobody has a clue. And then there's this thing now, the last decade or so, they say, well, there's, the universe is made up of 95% dark matter. Okay, well, what's dark matter? They don't know. <laughs> you know? And they say, well, okay, then we have to consider, you know, that the, pri- the, the primary energy in this universe is dark energy. Well, what's that? They don't know, e- they don't know that either, you know? I mean, a bit of a mystery, you think? And here we are. So, okay, so we put down the Hubble telescope. And let's, and, and instead of going out, let, let, let's go in, you know, and explore what that might be, just a little bit, to the smaller worlds. You know, we've been able to look at the atomic and subatomic worlds uh, pretty carefully now, the electron microscopes and other other ways of tracking these things. If we take the nucleus of an atom 
the neutrons and protons in there, and we blow it up to the size of a pea, the little electron that goes around the outside, or multiple electrons, would be about a half a mile away, the size of a piece of dust. So you get a kind of feeling of space inside the atom. And then if you go even further into those particles, they discovered that these particles are kind of coming and going into existence millions of times a second. And look even further, it's just vibrating energy. Our eyes are very crude. We see all these solid objects. But what really is going on? Now the Buddha, he understood this macro and micro creation without the aid of any of this fancy instrumentation. Hubble telescope, electromicroscope, that's not what he used. His instrumentation was, however, very sophisticated, entirely organic, and close at hand. He used his six senses. Applying these senses to phenomena, personal experiences, phenomena outside himself, just as you're doing with your practice, observing mindfully the arising and passing of phenomena, body sensations, emotions, thoughts, internal, external. You know, at some point in your meditation practice, you might, some of you might have felt like these, like, almost like champagne bubbles kind of come up, this tingly, bubbly thing. One of my early teachers, uh, um, S.N. Gwenka used to say, well, that's the, that's the direct experiencing of these subatomic particles coming into existence and disappearing. You know, for those who haven't, don't know about that practice, it's, you do a sweeping practice. For three days, you, you focus just on a place near the nostril, and then for seven days, you sweep. You don't do too much walking meditation. You just, you just keep working at it. I had another... Another teacher who used to say, well, those kind of feelings that we get sometimes, that's the feeling, the activation of impermanence. It's another way to, to look at it. A couple of years ago, uh, I went on, rec- on retreat for five months. And four of those months was with uh, Pawak Sayadaw. And he's a Burmese jhana master, samadhi master, concentration master. That's 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 what he that's what he teaches and and he had us or directed us kind of taking a step beyond these little bubbles to like select one of those little bub- bubbles that exist for a nanosecond that singular subatomic particle and determine the color the taste the smell the nutritive essence and the sex of it Okay, I mean, <laughs> uh, were we hallucinating? <laughs> you know, uh, maybe, you know. But what is the power of concentration, of samadhi, of, of cultivation of a mind that is very still? You know, does it have limits? You know, direct experiences like this, like you're having this week, um, you know, when you meditate, that's very different than just the intellectual understandings that we get about these things or that we can read about. You know, scientists, uh, they understand the nature of change and spaciousness, you know, they're quite eloquent about it. But are they any happier than anybody else on the street, you know? Are they freer? I guess it was a couple of years ago I was invited to, to give a talk at the observatory near Charlottesville, the, the telescope observatory. And my part, there was a scientist going to give a talk and I was going to give a talk. And my talk was the Buddhist cosmology. You know, people wanted to hear how that kind of meshed with, the, with what we know about the known universe. So I think it was Anushka mentioned it the other night at the different planes of existence. There's 31 planes of existence. The heaven realms, the 
the hell realms, the earth realm, animal, you know, all this stuff. So I'm laying that out and the scientists laying out their stuff. We all got to look in the tele, you know, everybody got a turn to look out in the, in the telescope. And, um, you know, there's a lot of dovetailing. The Buddha talked about all these worlds upon worlds upon worlds. And you hear the scientists talk about the same stuff. I mean, they know all this stuff. They work in it every single day. And they know that this is just all vibrating space. They get it perfectly, scientifically, intellectually. And I know some of them personally. But their lives are no better than anybody else's. They can articulate this stuff better than any Dharma teacher on the nature of the universe. Now, knowing that things are impermanent, that's where you start intellectually. We have to start somewhere. But not unless you take on the training of sitting and watching and watching and feeling the arising and passing of all this phenomena. Not until you do it over and over till you really internalize it so that your cells actually know it. Only then is there transformation. This from Pema Chodron. Impermanence is the goodness of reality. Impermanence is the goodness of reality. Just as the four seasons are in continual flux, winter changing to spring, to summer, to autumn, just as day becomes night, light becomes dark, becoming light again, and in the same way everything is constantly evolving. Impermanence is the essence of everything. It is babies becoming children, then teenagers, then adults, then old people, and somewhere along the way, dropping dead. Impermanence is meeting and parting. It is falling in love and falling out of love. Impermanence is bittersweet, like buying a new shirt and years later finding it as a part of a patchwork quilt. People have no respect for impermanence. We take no delight in it. In fact, we despair of it. We regard it as pain and we resist it. Somehow in the process of trying to deny that things are always changing, we lose our sense of the sacredness of life. We tend to forget that we are part of this natural scheme of things. And the Buddha said, it is the nature of all things to arise and pass away. Happy are those who can live with this wisdom the nature of all things to arise and pass away. Happy are those who can live with this wisdom. So just as we explore the cosmos as far as we can see and we find nothing kind of stable or stationary and just as we explore our internal world and we can't find anything stable or stationary there either I mean, there is a whole lot of change going on. And if, as Pema said, you regard change as pain, then there's a whole lot of pain going on. You'll struggle and you'll struggle some more. And then dukkha is known. Okay? The second of the three characteristics of existence. It's got many shades of meaning and we've touched on several of them here this week. My favorite is unsatisfactoriness or stress. In the, in the Pali Canon, which are the discourses of the Buddha, it's described in a whole range from intense mental and physical anguish on one end all the way to the subtle sense of feeling burdened or confined a little bit. It's a f- large range. It's also uh, been described as the, the oppressive nature of experience. The oppressive nature of experience. Ajahn Mahaboa, who a uh, legendary Thai forest master, described dukkha as 
anything that puts a squeeze on the heart. I like that one too. And in the commentaries, it's talked about, the commentaries are what were published after the Pali Canon. Anything which is hard to bear is dukkha. And we remember that the Buddha described his teaching as I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. And he wanted us to understand suffering such that he put it as the first noble truth. That yes, there is suffering. And the Buddha speaks of clinging in in this, you know, in the sense that there is, there is an inherent instability to everything. And when when there's clinging of any sort, we're beginning down the path of stress, dissatisfaction. And in the larger sense, you know, whether we're grasping or pushing away, we can feel a stickiness in the mind. There's a sticky quality to clinging. You know, whatever our motion is, holding on so tight, trying to keep things the way they are because we like them or pushing away, there's a stickiness. There's not a flow. And I think you've all experienced that at a, you know, at some level of depth this week. Somebody once said that suffering is like rope burn. You know, or holding on and it's moving. You know. And of course there's plenty of happiness to go around in life. You know, lots of it. But since things are in constant flux, chances are that whatever happiness is here today is probably not going to be permanent. But lucky for us, the other side of that is true. Whatever we find difficult today isn't going to be any more permanent either. So that basing our happiness on any external conditions is, is an iffy proposition. It's like being in the casino. You know, the odds are stacked against you. I mean, if you can create an environment where all the conditions are just right and, just, and stay there, for your entire life, you will be the first. You know, congratulations. I mean, even Lady Gaga <laughs> and Justin Bieber, Bieber, whoever the, the, the teen heartthrob is, you know, I've read that they have relationship problems and they get colds and, you know, and they'll probably get old, you know, you know. Well, maybe not Lady Gaga, because she is really special, I think. <laughs> you know, but for the rest of us, life is pretty unreliable. You know? Nature is this moving target. Everything we perceive through our senses, everything, is unreliable in the sense that it's always changing. That's the deal. Those are the cards we got dealt. This existence is unreliable. Each of us has a life sentence. We just don't know how long it is. You know, an asteroid could hit us in the next five seconds. Now all this instability can leave us, can kind of leave us feeling a little shaky sometimes. Not much is in our direct control. You know, the Buddha says, birth is suffering, decay is suffering, death is suffering. Not getting what one wants is suffering. And suffering even exists in pleasure. The seed of suffering is in pleasure because it doesn't last. You get some pleasure, it fades. You scramble around, get some more, it fades. Try to stack one up after another, they fade, they fade. And you have to chase it again. I mean, People Magazine, TMZ, stuff like that, they highlight the activities of the rich and famous, right? Well, the, 
and we can we can follow their follow their lives if we like and it's like they're on this gerbil wheel of pleasure seeking now it's a gilded gerbil wheel for sure but still um, you know ar- around charlottesville um, there's some beautiful farms and estates and occasionally i get to visit there and the gardens and everything and i just stand and say wow i would never even want to leave here for one day but the people who own these they get bored tired of it it's like they have to go get something new so they sell it find some something new a little more shiny to try to fill up the hole you know and i don't mean to point at the rich and famous you know um some of you may be rich and famous i don't mean to point um <laughs> And we're not any different. We just play it out at a different level, you know. And we can talk about the body in relation to suffering. Oh my gosh. I mean, it needs constant maintenance, doesn't it? I mean, just how, if, you, if you, it'd be, it'd be very sad if we all kept a, a log of how much time we spend trying to find ways to make this body more comfortable during the day, you know? and the housing, and the clothing, and the food, and the medicine, and, you know, looking for sex, and all the other things. You know, I, I was looking at my address book. And I, for you younger people, I actually have a paper address book. <laughs> you probably have no concept of what that is. But it, it like has, you know, all kinds of addresses and things scrunched down in there. And the growing lists of specialists that I've seen to keep this going, <laughs> it's really shocking. And I, I made it, I, uh, you know, when I was 20 years old, I occasionally went to a dentist. End of story. I didn't even know what a GP was. Now, here's what's in there. You know? <laughs> in, addition, in addition to my GP, I've seen, over the years, a heart guy, an ophthalmologist, an oncologist, a gastroenterologist, a dermatologist, orthopedic specialists of various kinds, foot, knee, and hand, an osteopath, occupational therapist, a physical therapist, an acupuncturist, a dental, sur- dental surgeon, and fairly recently, a shaman. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if next year, a gynecologist... <laughs> An exorcist. Yeah. I mean, just about every heading in the medical, in the yellow pages I, I've got. And I really think I'm really healthy. <laughs> I feel really, really strong and healthy. You know, the body's like, like an old English sports car, if anybody understands English engineering. You know, to keep them going, you have to tinker, tinker all the time. They're always falling out of tune and everything is always just a little off. You know? And so, okay, we suffer with this body. You know, whatever the deal was when we came into this world, you know, there's a checklist maybe. Do you want a body or not? I just didn't read the fine print. (laughs) And what about the mind? Boy, you've been exploring both body and mind. over these days I mean it won't listen it does what it wants we talked about how shameless it is it'll think anything and why does it think about things that make us feel bad you know it obsesses and it you know it it proliferates one thing to the next it likes to catastrophize you know that's real suffering and you suffer the agitation of craving. You know, the craving to stay alive, to keep this existence going. And paradoxically at times, you crave non-existence. Like, I want to get off. I'm in enough. And you're almost always craving sense pleasures. Those are the, those are the three cravings that the Buddha outlines in his teachings. Existence, non-existence, and sense pleasures. Well, in this casino of life, 
it really is stacked against you. You can't win. You know, your craving for existence isn't going to last forever. You know, at some point, gone. Any sense gratification you find is only temporary. Doesn't hold, doesn't stay. And if you go down that alley of, kind of the dark alley of non-existence, addictions, you know, trying to numb things out in various ways, cover things over. And even, you know, we have these loving thoughts and compassionate thoughts, and they don't last either. You know, they come and then they're replaced by who knows what. Now, if you can see clearly, if you can begin to see clearly that your cravings cannot possibly be satisfied, then you're at a very important spiritual crossroad. You're at that crossroad where you're interested about trying to find your way out of this dilemma. I, it was either alluded to or mentioned, you know, that I teach it, uh, been teaching in prison for a number of years, almost a decade now, I think. And my, on Wednesday, every Wednesday night I go out to this particular prison. It's uh, maximum security women's prison. And I teach there. And I really think, you know, working with some of these women now, and a number of them are lifers. Long, they're long-term in there. They're not in there for short stays. Uh, that many of those women have come to understand, uh, understand this point about suffering better than my other students. You know, if you're sentenced for a long time in a cage, you eventually see the futility in thinking that manipulating your environment in some way, the ex- external conditions are going to do something for you. You know, they get it that that doesn't work. You know, they're in that situation. There's no loopholes for them, but there is a way out. And they get that. But there's actually no loopholes for you either. These cravings can't be satisfied. But you still think that maybe, maybe you can, you know. You get that new thing, you know, that new possession or whatever, or you just get that little better job, or you get rid of this relationship and get a better one, you know. Um, Then all the suffering will stop. Again, from, from Pema Chodron. Whoever got the idea that we could have pleasure without pain, it is promoted rather widely in this world, and we buy it. By pleasure and pain, but pleasure and pain go together. They are inseparable. They can be celebrated. They are ordinary. Birth is painful and delightful. Death is painful and delightful. Everything that ends is also the beginning of something else. Pain is not punishment. Pleasure is not a reward. Pain is not punishment. Pleasure is not a reward. We always tend to want to get rid of our misery, you know, rather than to see how it interplays with, with the joys of this, of this life. And so as we're practicing and learning, the, 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 the goal of this practice isn't to cultivate one particular state or another, but to just relate wisely to whatever presents itself. And by wisely, you know, we mean just acceptance, kindness, allowing. So when we finally see the truth of dukkha and look, stop looking outside and stop trying to manipulate the external environment so much. Look inside. And that first step is always just acknowledging the existence of it. The recognition of the natural circumstances and conditions that 
create unsatisfactoriness. The uh, Hasids uh, had a great saying uh, that acknowledged the existence of suffering. They said that if God lived on earth, people would come and break out all his windows. You know, it's kind of, you know. We all get these runs of, of, of dukkha. Um, one not too long ago that I had, I was actually on my way to the prison, but I was late and I had another appointment. And so I kind of cut somebody off to, in traffic. They hit me, fender bender, nobody was hurt or anything. But And then this child in a policeman's uniform, this kid who was <laughs> younger than my son, gave me a ticket for rec- you know, reckless driving and everything, which I deserved, you know, so... So the, next, the, the very next day, I'm in my office and I'm working. It's in the lower level of the house and I'm hearing drip, drip, drip. And I, oh God, I put a load of wash in up above and there it is coming down through the ceiling and the wall. And So I couldn't do much about it. Turned it off, mopped it up because I had to go to the dentist. My, at that same day, my, <laughs> my tooth was hurting. And, um, and so I went and he said, oh, well, you're dental implant has failed. And I say, well, wait a minute. Dental implants, for those who don't know, they drill down into your jaw. They make sure your jaw is strong enough. And they drill down into it. And they torque this titanium rod down into the bone. And they put a tooth on the top of it. And it's, it costs a lot of money. And, it, you know. and I said, what do you mean it failed? You know? I said, you, pr- you told me that these things, I'm, you know, I'd learned about. You told me that, these, that in order for it to fail, someone would have to hit me in the jaw with a sledgehammer. <laughs> that it was that much a part of my jaw. And I said, I'm a little bit older, I'm forgetful, but I would have remembered <laughs> if that happened. You know? <laughs> so the dentist said, oh, it's really no problem, we'll just drill down into, down into the jaw again. I said, oh, thanks. But then, I had this, uh, you know, this realization just, oh, this is dukkha. (laughs) This is really unpleasant. This is dukkha. And in that moment of recognition, it's like the whole relationship to it changes. You know, no longer lost in it thrashing around. There's a, there, in that moment of recognition, there is some, some spaciousness around it. And so just by facing it, being aware, knowing, learning about the various flavors of dukkha, you know, we can be able to see and understand the suffering that, that follows if we're not accepting of this fact of life. You know, and in that situation for me, it all of a sudden wasn't quite as personal anymore. It just wasn't quite as personal. It was just stuff happening. Fender bender, water, drill in the jaw, stuff happening. <laughs> okay, so we touched a little bit on anicca, impermanence, dukkha, suffering. And if you can swallow the pill or swallow the Kool-Aid that, um, <laughs> that everything is impermanent and that your suffering is, a lot of it is caused by fighting against this. You know, basically fighting against Mother Nature. I mean, where does that leave you? I mean, you. The you you may feel inside. Are, is there self there? Are you selfless? Are you permanent? You kind of look permanent from up here. This is from the uh, Samutta Nikaya, one of the one of the discourses of the Buddha, and he's talking to his students. He's asking them questions, and the word bhikkhu, if you don't know what it is, means monk, nun. can, can be generalized to mean student or practitioner. So he says. What do you think, bhikkhus? 
is material form permanent or impermanent? And together they all respond, impermanent, venerable sir. Then he asks, is that which is impermanent satisfying or unsatisfying? And again, together they answer, unsatisfying, venerable sir. And then he says, is that which is impermanent, unsatisfying, and subject to change, fit to be regarded as, this is mine, this is what I am, this is myself. And together they said, no, venerable sir, no. So we're going to look at this third characteristic of existence, anatta. It's the concept of selflessness. And it's the most difficult of the three. In fact, it's the most enigmatic concept of all of Buddhism, or all of Eastern philosophy, really. So I want you to take this with some lightness and humor. I don't want you to get all like crunched down with this. Don't fret over it. Just explore it, you know, with some, with some lightness, with some interest. Okay, we'll start very basically. Uh, when I drag myself out of bed in the morning and I pass by a mirror, if I have the courage to look in it, <laughs> there's something staring back, right? You know, and it's not what I saw 30 years ago. I get that part. But there is something staring back. You know, there's a unique somebody there. There's nobody that has the exact same physiological, psychological makeup as I do. And we're all this snowflake configuration. We're not the same, okay? We're all this unique expression of creation, and that's really beautiful. But at the same time that we say yes to this conventional, unique existence that we all are, we are so deeply in- interconnected. Uh, the the Yen school of Buddhism has, um, uh, we get the, the jeweled net of Indra. And that's this cosmic net that, it, that there is a jewel in each, each little web part of the net. And each jewel reflects all the other jewels in the net. You know, we meet here like this, we come together like this, we're in each other's presence, and lots of you spoke about it in the interviews. Just, yeah, we're not talking, but there's a lot of communication going on. It's really amazing. So we feel the presence of each other beyond these boundaries. And this separation, yes, it's a conventional concept that can be helpful, but it's all interpenetrating. I want to read you something that kind of looks at this interpenetration from a scientific and fun standpoint. It's from Will Bryson's book, uh, A Short History of Nearly Everything. And he says, All things are made of atoms. They are everywhere and they constitute everything. And they are in number you really can't conceive. At sea level, at a temperature of 32 degrees Fahrenheit, one cubic centimeter of air a space the size of a sugar cube will contain 45 billion billion molecules. A molecule contains a minimum of two atoms and they are in every single cubic centimeter you see around you. Atoms, in short, are very abundant. They also are fantastically durable. Because they are so long-lived, atoms really get around. Every atom you possess has almost certainly passed through several stars and been part of millions of organisms on its way to becoming you. We are each so atomically numerous and so vigorously recycled at death that a significant number of our atoms, up to a billion for each of us, it has been suggested, probably once belonged to Shakespeare. A billion each may come from Genghis Khan, Beethoven, and the Buddha. So you get to see how the range of emotions that might be generated from these different characters. Uh, the, The personage has to be historical as it takes Adam some decades to become thoroughly redistributed. So you are all literal reincarnations. 
it may explain. You might have a like, you know, a little overdose of Buddha atoms in you, and you got interested in this stuff. <laughs> you know, not everybody comes to ten-day meditation retreats. Now, if we take the conventional view, the view of self that we're something static and permanent, if we take that as the final word, we really are diverging from the Buddha's teachings. And with that view, I dare to say, suffering is highly probable. And what we seem to do is we unconsciously assign certain characteristics to the self. We do this unconsciously. Usually we don't think about it a lot. And there are characteristics that aren't there. And that can, that can get us into, into some trouble. And one, one way to explore what the self is, is to determine what the self isn't. Okay? So let's look at just a few of these. Uh, uh, the main hidden beliefs. One characteristic that we assign is continuity. That the me, the I, the self that's sitting here listening to this talk is the same person that went to that particular grammar school, learned how to ride a bike at age six, got measles at age eight, you know, and that there's some, that there's some continuity. Now the strength, the strength of our belief in this continuous self will affect the amount of resistance we have to the usual changes in life. Old age, sickness, death, separation, loss. And depending on the strength of that unconscious belief in the continuity of self, change is either going to be more difficult for us or less difficult, depending on how tightly we've got that sense of continuity held. And this is all cooking below the radar. So let's go on. And remember that this exploration is supposed to be light, okay? <laughs> Don't strain. Consider the possibilities. Be entertained. Yeah. Now, another unconscious belief is that we, we kind of believe that there's an observer, you know, that's observing all this. Someone who sits apart from our body sensations, emotions, and thoughts, and you know, is apart from the general feeling tone, the consciousness, all this stuff. You know, the Greeks were interested in this too. They're always trying to figure this out. And they postulated this little, some, some of you may know, this little being called a homunculus that they said lives inside and kind of perceives, kind of moves things, like the wizard behind the curtain. That's how they saw that. Oh, the homunculus is in there, of course. You know. But even when we practice a lot, talk to long-term meditators, there's this kind of mm, this kind of feeling that there's an observer in there somewhere, right? Even if we can't find where he or she is, it's a kind of persistent feeling that meditators have. But after investigating and investigating some more, we find that that felt observer, we can't find, you know, it doesn't seem to have a form and it doesn't seem to have a location. So can this felt sense of an observer be the self if I can't find it? You know? Well, that's an inquiry. Check it out. You think you're going to get answers? Mm-mm. Another unconscious belief that we have is that of control. That we have some measure of control over the self. I mean, if I had control over this body, heart, mind, you know, I might make some modifications and adjustments. You know? And I certainly wouldn't have that address book with all those people who I don't ever want to see again. But we don't have any significant control over our body our mind and our thoughts. Yeah, we can cultivate a little of this and that and the other thing around the edges. And so some of you may be thinking, well, what about free will? I've got some free will. I can make choices. And yeah, we do. We make, we make choices in something. Somehow choices are being made. 
And the argument can be that, oh, there must be some, some essence or entity making these choices. Well, it's another point of exploration and inquiry. Okay? And when the Buddha spoke of not-self, his point was that, part of his point was that there are these unconscious assumptions that we have that are not true in any entity that we can find or discover. That there is no continuous abiding entity. There's no center of experience. There's no wizard behind the curtain. We don't have ultimate control over this I, whatever it is. And there can't be found a central core. So if there is no abiding permanent self, and believing in one adds to our suffering, what to do? I mean, how does this cycle get alleviated? Well, you're in it. The Buddha has the prescription. You know, and it's worked for millions of people over the last 2,600 years. When the Buddha invites you to sit down and mindfully experience all the comings and goings, body sensations, thoughts, emotions, changing perceptions, the feeling tone, pleasant to unpleasant, you know, that's the direct experience that will yield the freedom for us. When we spend this time long enough and we repeat it enough, carefully enough, experiencing the changing flow of everything, eventually we get the idea, it comes to us organically, to just loosen the grip a little bit. It just starts to happen. And when that happens, it's a big relief you begin to relax into this life and start to feel more like a river, more into the flow than in opposition and contention to everything that's occurring. That's a very different experience than, than life dominated by resistance. Our whole practice, the whole instruction of the Buddha is designed to help us, to guide us, to poke holes in this solidified sense of self. You know, and reduce our resistance to the flow of nature. And ultimately, that will lessen and eliminate suffering. Every contemplation of the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the one of the maybe recognized as one of the more important suttas, where it's the um, kind of laying out the scope of the mindfulness practice. And in that sutta, it talks about contemplating the breath, the body, feeling tone, all these different mind states, the hindrances, aggregates, sense fears, factors of awakening, four noble truths, all of this. In all these contemplations, he always ends his discussion of each of them with wanting his students to pay attention to the insubstantial nature of all of these. To watch the change internally and externally over and over until it starts to sink in. The Buddha spoke about us being not self-existent. We're not separate. He's really talking about we're composed of all these elements. Many conditions that happen to come to fruition to this activation that is, you know, the activation known as you. He said that all compound things, all, all things that are made up of parts like this are subject to dissolution. And you're made up of systems. You have millions of living creatures in you, 
all these colonies of bacteria and viruses, etc., etc. You're not self-existing. You're the result of everything. You've arisen due to causes and conditions. You can't control it. It's not yours. It's shaped by nature. You are nature. So anatta, selflessness, it really brings home the point. You're not separate. You're not apart from creation. So tonight we, we looked at the Buddha's three portals to freedom. The three characteristics of existence. In exploring anicca, the truth of impermanence, the truth of nature, it, it, it also squarely points to an appreciation of the preciousness of this existence to savor this rapidly moving world and each encounter that we have with our fellow beings. We're never going to be in this configuration again. And because of that change, nothing or anyone can be taken for granted. There's a, a freshening of that, in that realization. It's not to be feared. In exploring stress, the unsatisfactory nature of, of existence, dukkha, by just mindfully watching the ways, large and small, that you cling and hold tightly to things, ultimately teaches you not to grip so hard and to let go a little bit, and then let go a little more, and a little more. And you get to relax into the flow and into the beauty of this spectacular planet that you've been birthed on. Actually get to really have some moments of enjoying the ride, surfing the wave, so to speak. And lastly, you know, exploring this selfless nature of phenomena, as enigmatic as that is, teaches you not to take yourself so seriously, you know? to maybe even come to enjoy this magical cascade of all these emotions and thoughts, body sensations that are happening, without having to feel so, de- so desperate about it all, without having to feel so much ownership. This is mine, mine. This is me, me, me. You know, you can, you can ease up and maybe not feel so, quite so driven to have to promote this, whatever it is, and defend it. A self that's not so continuous, not so permanent, not having a core. And when that begins to happen, your burden gets lighter. And without carrying a lighter burden, you know, you get to kick back, have a little more fun. And you get to enjoy the wonder, the wonder of this life. So I want, to, I, want to, I want to close with a poem by Hafiz called Deepening the Wonder. Death is a favorite to us, but our scales have lost their balance. The impermanence of the body should give us great clarity, deepening the wonder in our senses and eyes of this mysterious existence we share and are surely just traveling through. If I were in a tavern tonight, Hafiz would call for drinks, and as the master poured, I would be reminded that all I know of life and myself is that we are just a mid-air flight of golden wine between his pitcher and his cup. If I were in the tavern tonight, I would buy freely for everyone in this world because our marriage with the cruel beauty of time and space cannot endure very long. Death is a favor to us, but our minds have lost their balance. The miraculous existence and impermanence of form always makes the illumined ones laugh and sing. 
Let's just sit for a moment. And as the master poured, I would be reminded that all I know of life and myself is that we are just a mid-air flight of golden wine between his pitcher and his cup. Thanks for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.